Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash WWII. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash W-W-I-I. Quite simply, lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Either way, go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Some of the courses I would like to recommend are Excel 2013 Power Shortcuts, something you definitely need in this day and age, and Income Tax Fundamentals, something all of us in the U.S. are struggling with now. As for myself, I've been taking lynda.com's courses on web development, web design, um, WordPress, Photoshop, as well as all their app-related courses, because I'm coming out with an app for the World War II podcast. So, you've all been warned. And what I love about it is you can go at your own pace. You can watch the videos over and over, and they do a really good job with their camera angles, the visuals, the audios, nice and clean, so you really do get a sense of what's going on. Again, you can watch it over and over again, like I certainly have. And for the Mrs. History of World War II podcast, she's been taking a lot of the video editing courses because she has decided to take all of her home family movies and just take them to a whole nother level and show them to everyone, whether they want to see them or not. But she's learning a lot and having a good time. And now that I'm doing this recording, I'm going to look on lynda.com and see if I can do anything about really loud birds outside my window while I'm recording. But for the rest of you, please remember that with a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching, stream thousands of video courses on demand, and learn on your own schedule. Learn at your own pace. Courses are structured so you can watch them from start to finish and consume them in bite-sized pieces. Browse each course transcript to follow along, or search for an answer and skip to that part of the video. That's what I've been doing a lot. Take notes as you go and refer to them later. Download tutorials and watch them on the go, including access on your iOS or Android device. Create and save playlists of courses you want to watch to customize your learning path or share with friends, colleagues, and team members. So, please keep this in mind. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, or you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit lynda.com slash WWII and sign up for your free 10-day trial. Again, that's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash WWII. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 124, The End of Crete. Last time, General Freiburg had pulled his headquarters out of Kenia after the Luftwaffe began an all-out aerial assault on the town, starting on May 24th. But he was not the only commanding officer to know defeat. On May 25th, the next day, General Student who had been given permission, arrived on Crete that morning. Before then, he had not only had operational control taken from him, but was ordered to stay in Athens. The only reason Gehring loosened his leash now 
was that his appearance on the island would help the field marshal justify his claim that it was the Luftwaffe, not the army, that had won the island. Student had become just a pawn. Some of the relative few surviving paratroopers were sent to him to receive various medals, but it meant little to Student, who seemed to his aides to have aged 50 years from the car ride from the airport to his first stop. That's because all around him were recently created mounds of dead German airborne assault troops, his lads, and they had been so young. The sights devastated the general. Morale was also low for those Allied troops who held the defensive line to the south of the coast road. The men closest to the prison valley had little ammunition and had spent the 24th with their heads down as parts of their line were also bombarded throughout the day. That evening, the New Zealanders could see German flares going up. The enemy would be coming tomorrow. With the morning of the 25th, the German bombardment commenced first against parts of the Allies' defensive line. The men of that line, from north of the coast road in front of Galatas to other spots like Red and Wheat Hill and Ruin Hill, dug into the dirt for protection. But at Galatas, as roughly the center of the line, by early afternoon, the bombing, now joined by artillery shells, was concentrated on the town itself. The idea seemed to be to weaken the morale there, specifically, so the Germans could charge, break the line, and then take the town. But to further improve their chances of success, the Germans would not only hit the New Zealander 28th Battalion straight on, but they would send men further south to break the Allied left flank. This would allow the attackers to enter Galatis from the west and south, hopefully nabbing many Allied soldiers before they could retreat. When the shelling stopped, men from the 100th Mountain Rifle Regiment, commanded by Colonel Utz, came forward. Their goal was the heights of Galatis itself, amidst the town. Behind the rifle regiment was Colonel Ramp's men, and if needed, the still weary and depleted men of Heinrich were acting as reserves. These were the men who had gone the days before without resupplies of any kind, and every one of those men was hoping they wouldn't be needed. That afternoon of the 25th, the Germans came on. But even as they passed through the olive groves to get to the foot of Ruin Hill at the southern end of the line, Major John Russell's men of the Divisional Cavalry started picking them off. Before too long, the German losses halted their attack, as the evening sun still gave off enough heat to add to everyone's misery. Colonel Utz allowed his men to rest for a bit, but then ordered them on, and progress was made but the Germans paid a price for it. Russell's men were paying that price, too. Men were falling all around him. But it was to the north, above the coast road, where the line of the 18th New Zealand cracked first. In those men's defense, they had spent the day being shelled and bombed. Colonel Kippenberger came forward to assess the situation. He grabbed every man Jackie could, from batmen and clerks and even a padre, and ordered a counterattack. Yet there simply weren't enough men still standing after a few more minutes of shelling. The Germans came on, and the line began to crack along its length, but it was holding. Yet because of the shelling, the support line, the second line of defense, completely fell apart and started running through Galatas, taking what wounded men they could. Panic was in the air. That panic spread to the first line, who now realized they had no support. But just as these men were about to run, units from the 20th Battalion showed up to stabilize the line. But that didn't help Major Russell to the south. His men were falling like pins, and thinking of his men, he asked Kippenberger twice for permission to fall back. Each time, he got a no. Not out of cruelty, but the colonel knew if their left flank was turned, the game was up. But even as the center was reinforced by the arrival of the 20th, the far left flank became surrounded. Other sections of the left were overrun 
or ran for Cemetery Hill, located to the southwest corner of the town. Word of this got out, and the 18th New Zealand, all along the line, started falling back, not wanting to have Germans show up on their side or at their rear. Soon the New Zealanders were running through the streets of Galatas. To the south, things got worse for the defenders. As each height was taken, the Germans rushed up large guns to continue the shelling on the retreating enemy. By 7 p.m., the German guns on Ruin Hill, the height farthest south, had reduced the New Zealanders on Wheat Hill to their north from two companies to just a few men. As for the rest, they were either dead or retreating, wounded. Before too long, Wheat Hill was also captured. The surviving New Zealanders were now prisoners. Kippenberger could read the writing on the wall and knew only a counterattack could save the 18th, give them enough time to fall back in some kind of order. The next line would form up further east, on the far side of Galatas, just before Deratzos, which was almost due south of the General Hospital. Now that the Germans held the land before the town and the western edge of Galatas, it was safe for their guns to focus on the town's center and eastern side, which they did. The only ones who would be killed by their shells were the Allies, or Cretans. At the moment, and it would only get worse when the Allies were gone, the Germans weren't all that concerned with Cretan safety. Through the shelling, Kippenberger still willed his counterattack to happen. As his men ran by him, going the wrong way, he yelled, Stand for New Zealand! But panic had now set in. Yet his line wasn't in complete disarray. Not yet. But just then, two things happened. First, Brigadier Inglis, guessing what Kippenberger was trying, sent men from the 4th and 5th Brigades. The line began to reorganize, which was fortuitous, as German soldiers could be seen amassing before them. But then, Kippenberger got his second break, as Australian artillery showed up with four Italian 75mm guns. They quickly scattered various German groups who had made it to some of the houses in northern Galatas, readying for the charge. Again, the line was holding here, just. But to the German rear and other parts of the line, the attackers were gaining ground, like at the bottom of Cemetery Hill to the southwest. But before Kippenberger could organize his counterattack, word reached him that the line above the coast road had broken. There was nothing for it. It was time to fall back. Given the word, his men fell back, but amazingly, in good order. This impressed the Germans, who wrote of it later. A new line was forming up at Daratzos, just to the east of Galatas and to the south of the General Hospital. And in this area, the coast road starts to turn in a southeasterly direction, running in between Darazzos to the south and the hospital, up along the coast. Yet, not everyone retreated. John Russell's men, well, his survivors, still south of Galatas, had held firm, so others could leave, with some kind of cover. But now, they were all but cut off as the Germans poured into Galatas. This renewed Kippenberger's desire for a counterattack, as it was the only thing that could possibly save those men. So, two companies from the New Zealand 23rd Battalion were chosen, who, though exhausted, just like everyone else, started grimly fixing bayonets. Just then, Lieutenant Roy Farron showed up with two light tanks. Kippenberger, hiding his relief to a respectable degree, asked him to reconnoiter the town, as he was about to send his men back in. The tanks made it to the center of Galatas, shooting at Germans when they could, before the second tank was hit with an anti-tank rifle. The armored vehicles then turned around, found Kippenberger, and Farum reported that the town was full of German soldiers. Still, it couldn't be helped. This counterattack was to take place, and now had two light tanks. Two hundred men were soon lined up, the tanks ready to go, after the injured crew from the damaged tank was replaced. But then Kippenberger got a gift from the god of war. 
As he was about to blow the whistle for the advance to start, a company on each side of the road, the tanks in the middle, men started pouring out of their hiding places and joined the line. Then men from the 28th Battalion, who seemed to be in every fight on the island, came forward and joined the line. Then the eccentric Captain Michael Forrester, his light hair askew, a rifle in one hand, a bayonet in the other, joined the line. As it was all but dark now, and as much as it hearkened Kippenberger to see more men joining his attack, he blew the whistle. The men started walking west. Then some of the men of the 28th Battalion began their Harka war chant. The other men didn't understand it, but mimicked the 28th as best they could. The chant almost drowned out the engines of the tanks. As Anthony Beaver wrote about this moment, quote, Bravery could be just as infectious as fear, unquote. And probably because of the adrenaline, the two tanks and the men on the line started going faster and faster. Yet the tanks started pulling away from the men. German artillery teams somehow got wind of what was happening before their comrades in the town and started firing. But the attacking men and tanks were moving so fast, the shells landed behind them, hurting no one. Then the Germans, much closer, realized what was coming. And though they believed themselves ready for whatever the battered British troops could dish out, they weren't ready for this. German grenades were quickly tossed to maim the advancing troops and to buy them some time. Yet by now, the New Zealanders and Greeks were among their number. The fighting was done by pistols, bayonets, and fists. Any locals still in the area, and there were certainly some, hoping to bunker down in their humble homes, were flushed out and ran away, grasping their children's hands. As for the Germans, they tried to deal with the New Zealanders and that damned war chant as best they could. But they were not ready or expecting the tanks. Because they had made the tanks turn around so quickly after they were spotted, the German front line expected not to see them again. But then, the tanks had not been there to fight, but to gather information. This time, they planned on staying a little longer. But the Germans had a contingency plan for any Allied armor. As Farron started shooting at the houses where Germans were suspected of hiding, Germans to the rear shot up flares, probably signaling the presence of Allied armor and requesting mortar fire. Because within minutes, shells started raining down. And because the tanks had outpaced the infantry, they were further within the town than their men. Ferrum's tank was hit. He and his gunner had been wounded and found their muscles now unable to defy gravity. They sank to the bottom of the turret. Yet Ferrum then managed to help the man climb out of the tank, his reward being getting hit twice more. Now the two wounded men lay near a stone wall, hoping the infantry would catch them up in the immediate future. As for the second tank, after watching Farron's vehicle get taken apart, literally a piece at a time, it turned around and tried to get away, but then it ran into the New Zealanders. One soldier had to put his pistol to the driver's head before he would agree to turn back around. Yet one of the crew jumped out once he realized they were going back into the fray and was shot by a private. No one said anything. The line moved on, the lone tank leading the way. Although the Germans had a short warning that the enemy was coming, they weren't expecting this. Their expectation was maybe enough men to check out the Germans and collect the wounded tank crew. But the Commonwealth men were charging in, breaking down doors, smashing windows, stabbing Germans before they could fire or call out or organize. And as quickly as victory can become panic and defeat, the surviving Germans started running away, some without boots, helmets, or weapons. One New Zealander, Sandy Thomas, took a second to take in the fleeing Germans. It was one second too many. As something hot hit his thigh, while a grenade exploded behind him, sending shrapnel into his back, the man collapsed. When he awoke, there beside him was Farron, 
urging the men on, crying, Come on, New Zealand, clear them out for New Zealand. And by midnight, it was done. Galatus was theirs again. The line had been reformed. But because they had lost so many men in obtaining the town, when Kippenberger found Inglis's headquarters, he told the brigadier that he needed at least two fresh battalions to restore the right flank, the one north of the coast road that had collapsed first, as well as replace his men, who were now too tired to repulse any offensive the Germans cared to throw at them the next day, especially given their air superiority. But that, Inglis believed, was beyond their current capabilities. Come morning, German aircraft would be strafing and bombing their men again. The line, as it stood now, was simply too long. German air power would punch holes into it, and then the enemy infantry would come along and pour through the gaps. No, it was better to pull back, shorten the line, and thus create a deeper defensive position, say, on their side of Daratsos. So, that very night, the victorious New Zealanders were ordered to fall back. Freiburg, like his officers, couldn't see how they were to hold out, given almost non-existent air cover. But what he didn't know was that Ringel was almost as equally worried. The Allies kept admirably pushing his men back. His one ace were the airplanes. But the majority of them were about to leave. Relief flooded Ringel when he was told that the enemy had pulled back from the town they had just retaken. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As the men pulled back, it was decided by necessity to leave the seriously wounded behind, men like Roy Ferrum. As the still viable men left, German shells started raining down on the remains of the town. Earlier that day, May 25th, Churchill had written to Freiburg, quote, Your glorious defense commands admiration. We know enemy is hard-pressed. All aid in our power is being sent. Unquote. And then to Wavell, the Prime Minister wrote, Victory in Crete essential as this turning point in the war. Keep hurling in all aid you can. But on May 26th, Freiburg decided, even after the victorious counterattack of Galatus that cost him so many men, that the battle for Crete was lost. He wrote to Wavell that same day, In my opinion, the limit of endurance has been reached by the troops under my command, here at Suda Bay. No matter what decision is taken by the CNC, from a military point of view, our position here is hopeless. This was Freiburg asking Wavell for permission to withdraw and evacuate the island, to which Wavell replied that if he, Freiburg, could just hold on here, Wavell, who was looking at the larger picture, said, the effect of the whole position in the Middle East would be all the greater, which was true, but that didn't help Freiburg very much. Wavell also said that commandos of lay force would be there on the night of May 26. Perhaps they, as fresh troops, could push the Germans back and give Freiburg time to pull men from further east to help 
at Suda Bay. But this was not what Freiburg wanted to hear. He had already decided the fate of his men and Crete. They were leaving, and in that vein, he began talking to his staff about disengaging and making for Safakia to the far south of Suda Bay. But the word withdrawal was not used. If that got out, the men, understandably, would stop fighting forthwith and ask which way to the beach. But plans and preparations were unofficially made as Freiburg waited on Wavell. But before any of this was survival, which meant food. During the night of May 26th, 80 tons of biscuits and meat were dropped off at Suda Bay. So, to make sure this delivery went smoothly, Freiburg had to keep the Germans and their artillery as far away as possible. And at that moment, the best the Allies could do, relatively safely, was to hold a line just west of the Klatzel River, two kilometers west of Kenia. And it would be the men of the New Zealand 5th Brigade and the 19th Australian Brigade, under Brigadier Vassy, forming the line, with the Greek 2nd Regiment holding their left flank among the hills. Behind them, acting as a second layer of protection for the coming food that would give them the strength to make their way south, was Force Reserve. Here, 1,200 men from the Rangers, the Welsh Regiment, and the Northumberland Hussars stood too. Suda Bay, meanwhile, was protected that night of the 26th by two battalions of 400 men each under Colonel Laycock, once they had come ashore with the supplies. Yet as the commandos walked up the beach, they were immediately told to dump their heavy gear and radios, the very things they needed to offer any offensive. Not having been told yet, these men would act as a rear guard for the march to the south. Not exactly what they were trained for. But during the day of the 26th, the Germans attacked the line. The second Greeks to the south, near Perivolia, seemed about to give. But then, miraculously, the Luftwaffe got something mixed up and attacked their own men, the 85th Mountain Regiment, for 45 minutes. Eventually, the bombing was halted, but by then the Germans were, understandably, exhausted and demoralized. With this reprieve, the Australian 2nd 8th and 2nd 7th were sent up to assist the Greeks. This latest troop movement was decided and implemented by General Weston, who had replaced Puttick. Freiburg no longer believed Puttick was making the best decisions. The Major General dutifully stood down, but warned his replacement and Freiburg that the Australians to the south and the New Zealand 5th Brigade, which had been fighting for almost a week now, were near the breaking point. Freiburg replied with, why not use force reserve to relieve the 5th New Zealand? But as for the Australians, Weston decided they had to stay where they were. The line had to be held as supplies and the commandos were coming in that night. The food was vital and no one could countenance allowing Force to walk into a death trap. But the officers were just as exhausted as their men, which meant mistakes were made. But unlike a soldier, when these men got something wrong, their men usually died. Brigadier Inglis had recently been placed in charge of force reserve, which, to this point, had not seen a lot of action. Many since the war have argued, at the very least, force reserve should have been a part of the counterattack at Galatas. Regardless, after a short and seemingly muddled conversation between Inglis and Weston, the former believed he was no longer needed to command Force Reserve, that Weston would be using the men himself. Who knows what was truly said, but the end result was Inglis stepped back from the unit. Later on that day of the 26th, Vassy reported that his Australians were having trouble holding their left flank. Weston replied, You must hold. The Australians tried again, but their left flank was feeling the pressure. The German leadership could sense something seemed extra valuable about holding them back on that day. Vassy again contacted Weston at 6 p.m. and reported they could not hold. It would be best to move back 
perhaps all the way to the east of Suda Bay, and thus have a short but thicker defensive line. Weston finally relented, kind of, and told Vassie he would talk to Freiburg. But it was not until 11.30 p.m. of May 26, before Weston told Freiburg of Vassie's request. Freiburg, for his part, reaffirmed his order that Force Reserve was to replace the New Zealand 5th and that the Australians were to hold in the South. How this was supposed to help the Aussies with their crumbling left flank remains a mystery. But a bigger mystery is why Weston did not send Freiburg's decision or his reaffirmed decision to anyone, Vassie or Puttick. They needed to know the overall vision Freiburg had for their defense, at least through the night. Those in the know later claimed that Weston was suffering from fatigue and made a bad decision in not making sure that those below him knew of Freiburg's orders. But again, this helped neither Vassie nor Puttick, the latter trusting Vassie's appraisal about his left flank. If the Germans got behind the Australians, they could cut off many, if not all, of the forward troops' passage to their next retreating point. This was located close to Weston's headquarters, near the land furthest in of the bay. Puttick might have been just as tired as everyone else, and still smarting over being relieved, but he was thinking clearly enough to realize the danger that was coming. So, at 10.30 p.m., not hearing from Weston or Freiburg, he decided on his own to counter the commanding officer's decision about staying put. He then ordered Vassie and Hargest to pull back their troops to Weston's headquarters. But then Puttick dropped the ball, probably due to fatigue, and forgot to tell Force Reserve, who had just replaced the New Zealanders, to the south. These men had set out just after midnight. As they approached Kenia, they heard nothing, just the moaning of wounded soldiers from all sides and civilians. They kept walking southwest. At 2.30 a.m. May 27th, they reached the river. But because of the mix-up or breakdown in communications, they were alone. When the morning came, these 1,200 men of Force Reserve would be attacked by five German regiments, some 4,500 men. At 8.30 a.m., the Germans came on, flanking Force Reserve while pounding them with mortars and machine guns. There was no one else in the area for the Germans to shoot at. Credit must go to Lieutenant Duncan, in charge locally, who quickly figured out that something was amiss. He tried to get word to Weston about what was going on, amid the shells bursting around him, but could not get a signal out. Then he tried runners, but they all died before getting too far. Eventually, after he had already lost too many men, without being able to inflict anywhere near equal the damage, Duncan finally gave the order himself for everyone to retreat. The men of B and D companies ran for their lives. The Germans were hard upon them, but would pay for this. A few times during their running retreat, Duncan's men would, on a signal, stop, turn, and fire at their pursuers, and such was the enemy's proximity. Casualties occurred each time. And only after running for more than an hour did the surviving men of Force Reserve reach Weston's headquarters. As for the Germans chasing them, not only did they run into the organized defensive line of the 5th New Zealand Brigade and the Australians, but then the ever-ready men of the 28th Battalion countercharged, screaming their Harka chant while hitting the enemy on each flank. Many, many German soldiers were bayoneted instead of shot by these men. By the time the situation grew quiet again, some 300 German soldiers lay dead. Yet of the 1,200 men of Force Reserve, only about 400 made it back to the line. These latest events boiled down to this. When Ringel commenced his encircling attack, after figuring out that the enemy had given up Kenia and the Suda area, all he had captured 
were the remains of force reserve. He inflicted significant damage, but had hoped that the casualties and prisoners would have been five times the number they were. As for the Allies, the only good thing that could be said of how this day's events turned out was that the Australians, being pulled back by Puttock on his own authority, were able to help the equally exhausted New Zealand 5th to repulse the German attack. Had that succeeded, not only would have Weston's headquarters been overrun, but there is no telling when or where the offensive might have been checked. But such was the outcome. But now that the Germans had been checked, this gave the ranking officers time. Time to blame each other, which didn't change anything for the better at the moment. Everyone was still tired and running on their last reserves, mentally and physically. Later that day, Captain von der Heidt met with the mayor of Kenia, who formally surrendered the town, hoping this would end the killing of the island natives. It would not. Mostly because they and the Greeks were not finished killing Germans. Now that Layforce, the commandos under Laycock, were oriented, Freiburg instructed the colonel that his men would be providing a rear guard, as he was currently waiting for Wavell to approve his request for evacuation. And to make sure that that happened, Freiburg sent another message to the CNC that afternoon of the 27th. There were no questions or requests in this signal. Freiburg stated that his men could not continue without air support. Fair enough. It had been a decisive factor for the Germans. So it didn't matter if they took men from Retimo to help with the tactical retreat, which left Freiburg only one option, as he was not going to surrender. The men would be marched to the south and await evacuation at Suffakia, a small fishing village. Now, this was being poured into one of Wavell's ears. The other was being filled with Churchill, who said over and over that now was the time to hurl in reinforcements and save the island, which would then save Egypt, which would then save the whole of the Middle East. But Wavell believed Freiburg, as in the case most of the time, that the man on the scene was the one to be trusted. So, replying to the Prime Minister's cable, Wavell formally asked for permission for the forces to be evacuated. Ten hours later, probably ten hours of shouting by Churchill, a reply came back, granting permission. But the Prime Minister also let Wavell know his time as the CNC was about to come to an end. Wavell later wrote that on May 27th was the worst day of his life. The question is, did he mean because he knew his time as the leader of the Middle East theater was about to end? Or possibly that the Allies were about to, again, commence a daring and risky evaluation in the face of the Germans? Or possibly that, on that same day, Rommel had captured the Halfaya Pass? Or that, on that day, Rashid Ali was in control of Baghdad? Or that, on that day, the Prime Minister had overruled Wavell? who did not think it was a good time, due to resources, to get involved in Syria. Indeed, there were so many reasons for Wavell to choose from. So, during that late afternoon of May 27th, the headquarters of Cree Force moved out, heading towards Safakia. But because of the White Mountains to his south, Freiburg was forced to go another five kilometers east along the coast road before he could turn south. This dovetailed with Ringel's decision not to wholeheartedly pursue the retreating men. Instead, he was concerned with continuing further east to help his comrades at Retitmo. Yet enough German troops were sent after Freiburg and his men to make an attempt at stopping them before they reached the beach. Not that the Anzacs needed the encouragement to head south. Once the word got out, or rather the word retreat, made its way through the ranks, Freiburg's prediction came true. Equipment of all kind, anything that could slow the men down, was dumped on the side of the road. Stationed closer to the Suda Bay area was Lay Force and two companies of the 28th Battalion. They were led by Captain Rangi Royal, 
Very appreciative were the men of the New Zealand 5th Brigade, of the 28th and now Lay Force. But at the moment, the New Zealanders kept looking ahead for the road on the right that would lead them south. Laycock none too gently informed Freiburg that, as he had been ordered to abandon his radios and heavy equipment, the last thing his men could do very well was act as a rear guard. Yet Freiburg's mind was made up. The Germans, in the form of Colonel Whitman's motorcycle detachment, came on, first during the morning of May 28th, and in their path were the two companies of the 28th. Yet the Germans brought mortars and machine guns. The 28th held out until later that morning, but then gave way. The Germans moved on. Then it was Layforce's turn. But that battalion gave up even more quickly than the 28th, mostly because of a lack of cover or tools to dig trenches. Their shovels were probably still at the spot where they embarked. Still, Layforce did what they could and then scattered taking their wounded into the hills and mountains. The road to the south was clear, yet the Germans proceeded cautiously. As they turned south and headed into the mountains, images came back of what they had been through in Greece, chasing the enemy into the heights. By the end of the 28th, all able-bodied Allied forces had left their stations and were heading south, except those at Heraklion, the troops furthest east. They would be picked up there. Brigadier Chapel, the commanding officer of the forces at Heraklion, was told that ships would be arriving that night to pick up his men. However, as the maximum number was 4,000, not all Anzac forces would be rescued. As for the Greeks and Cretans, well, there was no question about taking them aboard. The New Zealanders felt bad about what was going to happen, but still headed for the harbor when the time came. The older, white-haired Cretan Santanas, who had done so much for the Allies, came up to the younger chapel and said, My son, we know you are going away tonight. Never mind. You will come back when the right time comes. This didn't help chapel with his guilt. But, gathering up as many arms and as much ammo to hand over to those staying behind, certainly did. Force B, under Rear Admiral Rawlings, made up of three cruisers and six destroyers, left Alexandria, bound for Heraklion at 6 a.m. on May 28th. The waters they were heading for, in coming around the island's eastern side, was firmly in German hands. But that could not be helped. Indeed, the Luftwaffe found the cruiser Ajax just south of one of the straits and damaged it, forcing it to turn around. Yet the rest of the fleet made it unharmed. The ships reached the harbor at 11 that night, May 28th. The destroyers came in close and took the men to the cruisers. When the latter were full, the destroyers went to the main jetty one last time to take on as many men as they could hold. The ships departed at 3.20 a.m. That night, some 3,486 men were evacuated from Crete. The Germans were unaware. The Allies, lucky. But Cunningham did not want to risk this again. There was no way his ships could take 22,000 men from the island safely while dodging the Luftwaffe. Someone was bound to get caught. But then... Fate stepped in. After an hour of sailing south, the steering gear of the HMS Imperial broke. Wasting no time, the Hotspur came alongside and took off the men and crew, except for a group of Australians who decided to celebrate their rescue by getting so drunk they could not be moved or awakened by the screaming sailors. When the Hotspur pulled away, the Allies knew the ship could not be left behind for the Germans to use to shift men to capture some of the more important smaller islands of the Aegean. Torpedoes were put into the Imperial, which quickly sank with all those still on board. But even with sacrificing the Australians, the transferring of men took time. Too much time. The Luftwaffe was airborne by 6 a.m. and would harass the fleet 
for the next eight hours. The first to be caught was the destroyer Herward, which had on board, besides its own crew, some 450 men from Crete. But the bomb that landed on her did so amidships. Rawlings knew from experience that she was doomed, and to send any ship back for survivors would only bring them the same fate. As before, the Luftwaffe strafed the men bobbing in the waters. That is, until the Italian Red Cross came upon the scene and started plucking the men from this latest hell. The Italians had not forgotten the kindness done to their sailors after the Battle of Matapan. Then the Orion, the ship with the most men from Crete on board, was hit by two bombs. The bombs passed through several layers before exploding, which only increased the number of casualties. Of the 1,000 soldiers, some 260 were killed, and another 280 wounded. The Dido was bombed twice, but managed to bring her men home, yet lost 103 out of the 240 that were on board. On May 29th, the fleet sailed into Alexandria, yet had lost, en route, just over a fifth of their passengers from Heraklion. To his credit, the moment Freiburg heard from Wavell his permission to evacuate, the CO tried to reach Campbell at Retitmo. He desperately wanted to tell him to get his men moving south and meet up along the coast road. Airdrops were tried, but nothing came of it. A ship did manage to get from Suda to Retitmo, but during the earlier part of the 27th, and word from on high had not been given yet, so Campbell had been told nothing. As the Germans still controlled a part of Perivolia, the other Perivolia further east, that meant they still controlled the road in between Retitmo to their west and the town. And Campbell knew he didn't have the men or the means to shift them, so made damn sure they didn't get the airfield further east. But none of that mattered when on May 29th, a Greek officer told Campbell, that the British were preparing to leave, but that other German soldiers, these of Ringel, had entered Retitmo from the west. These were the fast-moving motorcycle troops of Lieutenant Colonel Whitman. Campbell wondered why they stopped there. Why not come on and retake all of Perivolio? The answer was simple, yet disastrous for the British. Whitman was waiting for two tanks that had landed back in Castelli the night before. And now that the road from there to Retitmo was under German control, the armor was making good time and should arrive to assist the next day. So that morning of May 30th, the attack with the armor support got underway. Campbell tried to resist, but he didn't have an answer for the tanks, mortars, and machine guns coming against him. Besides, the Germans had made it clear that if Campbell did not surrender in a battle he could not win, the Germans would slaughter the people of Retitmo. Campbell, for better or worse, took this into consideration. He soon signaled Sandover to his west on Hill B that he would be surrendering. Quote, I advise you to do the same. Destroy all weapons you possibly can. Unquote. Then, tying a white towel to a stick, Campbell and two other officers walked down the hill to give themselves up. Major Sandover, however, had other ideas. Using Campbell's surrender and the consequent negotiations of details, he, 13 officers, and 39 men legged it for the hills. There they stayed for a few months before being picked up after things calmed down by a submarine. As for the main body of retreating troops, Ringel had seen enough. Retitmo would soon be his. So he ordered the capture of Stilos, a town about six miles away from Suda Bay, on the way south to Safakia. The ones ordered to stop this and the general pursuit of Freiburg's men was lay force, now overseen and organized by Brigadier Graham. Fine enough, but Laycock and Wall, working with him, could not get a straight answer from anyone who outranked them. What was the overall plan? By the 27th, Hargast's New Zealanders had reached Stilos, Ringel's new objective. The idea was for Hargast to stop, rest, 
regroup his men, and then prepare to continue up the White Mountains. The other side would lead them down to the coast. But such was the state of all the men, organization seemed impossible. The men were now beyond exhaustion and merely walking behind whoever was in front of them. The New Zealanders didn't get much rest before the advanced units of the German 85th Regiment appeared. However tired, life does find a way. The exhausted men jumped up, grabbed their guns, and dove behind a nearby wall. And as they were higher than their pursuers, they started shooting down on the more accessible Germans. This defensive action was successful, yet had the Germans shown up just a few hours before, they probably could have set up and stopped the retreat altogether, cutting off the British forces from leaving the island. And yet the seed of this success was owned by the Greek and Cretan forces who had held up the 85th mountain with such a determination, it made the attackers still cautious. The Greeks and Cretans knew they would not be boarding any of the coming ships, but fought ferociously, anyhow, to help the British leave. So perhaps they could, one day, return. As the retreating men continued on their trek, the road, a path at times, rose up into the mountains. The temperature dropped. The men by now had thrown away everything they could, but not their clothes. Not that it mattered, because by now many of their boots were coming apart, piece by piece, falling off the zombie-like walkers. And all during their journey, the Luftwaffe came at the men, mostly during the day. But occasionally, a flare would light up the ground at night, and about 30 or 40 planes would dive down from the higher darkness to strafe and bomb. The soldiers that were able to rise once again kept walking. The few farms the men came along were poured over, like ants. By the time the men disappeared, the wells were dry, the eggs were gone, the animals likewise. As the men reached the summit of the White Mountains, the view that waited for them of the Ascafu Plain was just as picturesque as any place in the world. But once the men had gone through here, with the German planes bombing them whenever they could, this paradise was left charred and wrecked. As the men started down into the plain, the sea, their salvation, was visible in the distance. But the troops had to do it without a road. This, too, a building of the road here, had been discussed a year before, when the Allies considered Crete's part in the larger war. But like so many things as touching the island, none of the ideas were put into practice. As the men neared the coast, they found caves to hide in, to wait for the ships. But now that they were readying for departure, and we've seen this before at Dunkirk and in southern Greece, it was time for some serious organization. Outside the town of Svakia, units were placed along the path the men were creating. Their job was to only let formed-up units go by, in order to account for as many men as possible. Yet the trailing Germans could be seen through Brigadier Vassy's binoculars. He got a message to Freiburg stating that they could hold the bastards for at least 24 hours. But the Germans were coming down from the heights and other places. Word got to Brigadier Hargest, who sent up two platoons on either side of the Germans, and shot them up. As the Germans fled, they left 39 of their comrades dead on the ground. Some of the Anzacs were still making their way through the Askafu Plain on May 29th. No matter, time was of the essence. The embarking would start the next night. Freiburg left the island by flying boat. In Greece, he had stayed as long as he dared, but now the general knew of Ultra, so his capture could not be risks. There were those in London who did not want to risk any more of Cunningham's ships to rescue these men. To lose many more vessels would seriously undermine the Admiral's ability in the area, just as they were becoming even more important, considering North Africa and now Iraq and Syria. But Cunningham's reply went to the heart of the matter. Quote, Gentlemen, it will take three years to build a new warship. It takes 300 to build a tradition. The evacuation 
will continue. Unquote. By the second night of withdrawals, some 8,000 men had left the island. By the third, most of the 5th Brigade were gone. This success was mostly due to the absence of the Luftwaffe. In fact, the major air attack on May 27th was the last serious air assault. The planes of the 8th Air Corps had been pulled back to take part in Operation Barbarossa. As the nights went by, the men yet to be embarked started to assume that the cutoff point would be reached soon and they would be left behind. So stragglers started working their way into the lines of formed units, but were pulled out when roll was taken. The New Zealand guards were disgusted with this duty, but had a job to do, and could only assume that those who outranked them knew what they were doing. Supplies did come from the ships, but not what the men really wanted. As the men were loaded on, matches and flour were offloaded. Not that anyone wanted to light a fire, as it was thought to attract enemy aircraft. There were still German planes attacking the men and ships, not just, mercifully, as many as before. Yet ships were still hit. Men inside those ships still died. And, contrary to his own words, even Admiral Cunningham had reached a point. On May 30th, the Admiral informed the Admiralty that tonight would be the last sortie. Any men not picked up then would be left behind. Simply, it was a matter of losses of his fleet versus the few thousand men he could, hopefully, save. Rear Admiral King would make the journey, and this news Wavell signaled to Weston and Hargest, who somehow managed to bite back a reply. Yet they did signal back that they firmly believed that they could hold the Germans off for another three nights, which would allow them time to take away the last of the 9,000 able-bodied men. When Churchill heard about this, he screamed at the vice chief of naval staff, who then screamed at the Admiralty, who then screamed at Cunningham. But the Admiral stuck to his decision. He knew that after this affair was over, he would still be expected to dominate the area, help in North Africa and now the Middle East proper, and that took ships and crew, of which he had lost a significant amount in the last few days. It's not known if Cunningham knew of this, but his seamen were feeling the strain too. Some of them had jumped overboard when their ships left Alexandria to make for Crete. With this latest intelligence, Weston made his plans. The Australians who had helped make up the rear guard would be taken first, then Laycock's commandos, and then any stragglers. But Weston knew there would be men left behind, so as to improve their chances of being able to surrender and not be shot out of hand. He wrote up the surrender instructions. To wit, well, gentlemen, there are one million drachma in that suitcase. There's a bottle of gin in the corner. Goodbye and good luck. That was it. By 11.30 that night of May 31st, a troop ship, two cruisers, and three destroyers were off the shores of Suffolkia. And as word had gotten around that this was the last night, all the stragglers that could were now on the beach. As they left at 3 o'clock in the morning of June 1st, some 3,710 men had been saved. But the remaining German air power still operating in the area was not done. As the ships made their way to Egypt the next morning, they came under attack. Cunningham, probably telling himself that this was all about to be over, sent out the Coventry and Calcutta to offer anti-air cover. The Calcutta would be sunk in its last rescue mission but the ships carrying the troops made it safely. Back on Crete, there were still some 6,500 men, and they were frustrated at the decision-making process and the organization of the rescue. Soon after, they would become POWs. This number did not take into account the Greek troops, who were still fighting in the mountains, believing the withdrawal was still taking place. The beach was quiet now, except for the waves. Word spread that the evacuation had ended. Most men fell to their knees, quiet, 
with desperation. Others got angry and cursed everyone they could think of, but did so quietly. Colonel Walker realized he was the ranking Allied officer now, so grabbed what white cloth he could, walked up the long path to the top of the hill, and surrendered. And during the surrender, German airplanes strafed the Aussies one more time, killing two and wounding many others. Three German soldiers ran out among the Australians, trying to wave the planes away, but they were killed as well. Crete was another German victory, but it didn't have to be. Many decisions made by several people just made it that way, and the war went on. But Admiral Cunningham had to keep going after losing 75% of his Mediterranean fleet, whereas the Luftwaffe had only lost 47 aircraft. Epilogue. The men left behind at the beach were marched back across the mountains and taken to the 7th General Hospital. Not for care. That was where the holding areas were organized. The Germans managed to gather some 11,835 British and Commonwealth troops. However, 300 others had managed to hide in the mountains and were picked up by subs the next year. In time, all but 800 prisoners were sent to Poland. Those remaining continued to repair roads and bury the dead. As for the seriously wounded, they were flown to Athens for medical care. This was where Roy Ferrum, the tank commander, was sent, and he got to see firsthand the relationship between the Axis partners. When he came on shore, an Italian ran up and spit in his face. A German guard watched this and then proceeded to give the Italian a beating that made Ferrum feel pity for him. On May 28th, a large Italian force landed on the far eastern shore of Crete. Mussolini proudly announced that his men had fought tough resistance, but managed to meet up with their German comrades. The only part of this that was true was the landing. Before too long, the SS came to the island. Their job was to teach the Cretans loyalty. But the locals never quite learned the lesson. The Commonwealth troops who were prisoners, who escaped long enough to get food, were always assisted. The husbands would shout at their wives not to feed anyone, and then turn around and give of what they had to the British, Greek, and Cretan soldiers. As for the last group, by the time the occupation of Crete was over, some 3,474 Cretans had been executed. For comparison's sake, between May 20th and June 2nd, basically the entirety of the Battle of Crete, almost 4,000 Germans were killed and 2,594 were wounded, and nearly half of these numbers came on the first day. And in a bit of trickery, and this has to be admired, after Crete fell, Goebbels put out a rumor that Crete had been nothing more than a full-scale rehearsal for the invasion of Britain. It was soon written up. But this edition never saw the light of day, as the Minister of Propaganda then had all the issues collected and destroyed. This guaranteed that foreign journalists would write of what happened. But London was not fooled. Ultra had made it clear. It would soon be Russia's turn. And though it was believed for decades after the war that the Battle of Crete delayed the invasion of Russia, the majority of historians now regard the delay as due to weather. The river valleys the Germans had to cross were still flooded in mid-May. But Crete did contribute to the war. Had Crete not been defended and instead been another easy German victory, one can just see General Student asking and being granted permission to do the same thing at Cyprus or Malta. And the German casualties there would have been horrendous, as they were on Crete, but if Malta had fallen, Rommel would have been supplied much more consistently, which would have allowed him to threaten Egypt proper even more. It's worth considering. Some 1,743 British and Commonwealth troops died on Crete, and some 1,700 were wounded. Besides which, Churchill took the loss of Greece and Crete 
personally. But there was a world war on. Other things had to be considered. The Prime Minister worried how this latest defeat and evacuation would make them look to the Americans. So publicly, Churchill could not admit to any mistakes being made in the defense of Crete. Yet, privately, he met with some of the officers and received a much fuller picture of Freiburg's decision. An inquiry was started. Sadly, there was enough blame to go around. Yet Freiburg was honest enough to say that the fault was not of the men. He mentioned as his main defense the German air dominance, which rankled Churchill. And the two men did not speak for a year, until Freiburg was wounded in another action, and the Prime Minister sent him a letter. The breach was repaired. As for the British Empire, they had faced the fall of France, Dunkirk, the Battle of Britain, the highs of Operation Compass, and now the lows of losing in Yugoslavia, Greece, most of North Africa, Syria was looming, and now Crete. They were truly alone. What they needed, what they desired, was an ally. Anyone would do. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I'm going to keep this short and sweet because I am on my way to Disney. Yay! I was waiting for my parents to take me, but considering my age, I don't think that's going to happen. So anyway, I would like to just uh, thank a couple people real quick. As far as those who donated, Robert Escobar of Irving, Texas, and you should check him out on Twitter, History of a Thing. I like a lot of the pictures and the stuff that he puts up there. So, Robert, thank you very much. And Randy D. from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, thank you. As for my new members, again, I just want to say hello and welcome aboard to Adam J. from San Francisco, California, and Shane J. from Weatherford, Oklahoma. Um, what are they like? 54 episodes, something like that. And and my last member, um, I know he did this to me on purpose. He asked me to say his whole name. Let's see here. Kurt Johannesson something and, and, and from Denmark. So sorry, Kurt. But thank you for being a member, and I hope you enjoy the episodes. So I will see you all as soon as I can with the next episode after I go work on my tan for a little bit and hang out with Mickey. So, and I just want to say this, but I, I know that you're not crazy about the commercials at the beginning of this, but after five years of doing this podcast, I've you know, found a way to make a little bit of money, so I just appreciate your patience. And guys, the Harry's Razor is awesome. <laughs> you should check that out. And as far as the, um, the lynda.com, I am learning a lot about uh, editing because there's going to be a lot of home movies about Disney. So again, there, it's just really good reference and you should check it out, but I do appreciate your patience. Take care, everyone.